Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc. through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 5. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. If you're new to this podcast, I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from experts outside of your centre. This podcast is designed to change some of that by helping you, the dermatology residents, get answers from leading experts across the country. This season, we're taking a deep dive into complex medical dermatology. We're recording today's episode at the CDA conference in Toronto, and I'm thrilled to be doing this interview in person with Dr. Regine Midlarski. Regine is an associate professor and section chief of dermatology at the Cummings School of Medicine in the University of Calgary. She's also the chair of the Specialty Committee in Dermatology for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Regine, welcome to Dermalogs. Thank you so much for having me here today. Listen, I've been wanting to do immunobolus for many seasons, so I'm thrilled that we're actually getting the opportunity to sit down. And in person, mind you. So this is even better because I get to see you while we talk. Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad to be here. I think immunobolus conditions are something that are a bit challenging for residents for myself included. And so I was hoping that maybe we could go through uh, some of your approaches to sort of the pemphigoid family and the pemphigus family, and then talk about therapeutics. Because um, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like over the past couple of years, I've been seeing more and more patients with pemphigoid. Yeah. Oh, I think for sure there's a, it's fairly well documented in the literature that there's an increase in the incidence of pemphigoid. And it's interesting too with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. We've, uh, whether it's panned out or not in the scientific literature, but I think anecdotally, we've all seen such an increased incidence of pemphigoid and pemphigus. It just seems like there's more cases and the patients will come in often telling you that their disease is flaring mm-hmm. after they've had the infection or after they've had the vaccines. Now, um, some of the data that's out there just sort of obviously refutes that association, but it's uh, it's interesting. I I agree. I'm seeing more and more in my practice. Okay, that's good, because I was wondering if I had just been missing a whole bunch for a long time, but it sounds like it's probably a true phenomenon. Yeah, or maybe, you know, we're just getting so good at diagnosing it that we're catching (laughs) it earlier. I don't know. It's probably a combination of things. (laughs) Maybe both. Maybe both. Yeah. So I just want to walk through your process, really. So, you know, let's say a 72-year-old woman comes in um, and she's got some urticated plaques and she tells you that's been going on for, you know, a couple of months. She's super itchy. At that point, um, if you're kind of thinking, okay, this could be pemphigoid, how do you tend to work that patient up? Like what's your process? Sure. So if I have a clinical index of suspicion, then obviously, um, you go through the history, uh, of course, there's certain key things you're wanting to elicit in history. And I think nowadays, too, drug-induced pemphigoid is one of the more common things. So, mm-hmm. you know, as always, we say, take the complete history physical, but look at that drug list. Um, the gliptins, for example, if patients are on immune checkpoint inhibitors, those are all things that we have to think about. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to making the diagnosis, you know, obviously, um, we can look at our skin-directed sort of procedure. So doing biopsies for both routine pathology and direct immunofluorescence. And depending on how high the index of suspicion is, I'll get the blood work going. Okay. Um, so if I'm fairly certain of my clinical diagnosis, I often at the same time just initiate the basic blood work. I'll look for antibodies peripherally. And depending on, I guess, where you are in the world, there are different 
assays we can look at. You can look at good old-fashioned indirect immunofluorescence. Mm -hmm. You can look at ELISA's. And in Alberta, we use Luminex or addressable laser bead immunoassay technology to measure antibodies. So a whole bunch of different ways you can look at that. Um, and I guess, you know, it depends how you know, what's your clinical index of suspicion? If it's pretty high, you're going to do a more elaborate workup. If you're not too sure, you'll just start with the biopsies and see where you go. Okay. Yeah. And I think, uh, in my part of the, my neck of the woods, we still do the old fashioned, um, uh, indirect immunofluorescence, which I will say is often not positive, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that the DIF and biopsy are positive. And I don't know if it's just the assay or I have no idea. You know, I think there's a lot of variability with the indirect immunofluorescent assays, which is why, I mean, in the ideal world, you're using the, you know, the newer technologies Mm -hmm. they are more sensitive, more specific things like the ELISA's or the, um, the laser bead immunoassays are definitely better. And I mean, it raises also the point that what do you do if you don't have those antibodies, Mm -hmm. right? And then that gets you into a whole other host of what are the (laughs) other possible subepidermal bullous diseases that can mimic BP, right? Right. And I want to loop back to that after, because I think that's also a clinical challenge. If you have the patient and you do have a high index of suspicion in your initial workup, do you tend to think about treatment options that you may use and do some of the other blood work like a G6PD or TMPT or do you do you hold off on those until later? No, I don't. So if I think someone's going to need that, um, you know, I I do the workup basically to say, am I going to need an immunosuppressant or Mm -hmm. am I going to need an immune modulator and what does that entail? So for pemphigoid, it'll often start, you know, I'll do my basic stuff like CBC, liver functions, renal function, um, Mm -hmm. testing, all the the common things. But you want to do your hep B, C, HIV serology. If we're thinking we might really need to immunosuppress, then it's do we do a MANTU test or a quantifiron, right, and mm-hmm. along those lines. And then if you're thinking down the road of, okay, well, am I going to have to start a steroid-sparing agent, then, you know, exactly like you said, doing something like a G6PD to, in case you're going to want to use Dapsone or using um, testing for a thiopurine methyltransferase for Imuran, mm-hmm. um, those are all pretty standard. Um, and so, again, if my clinical index is high, I definitely order those at the beginning. Okay. Let's say, you know, recognizing that if it's in a limited area, you're probably going to start an ultra potent topical steroid, but you know, realistically, probably most of the patients you see are not limited, Mm -hmm. um, and you need something systemic. So Mm -hmm. what's your go-to? Are you always steroid? Do you start something at the same time? How do you, and, and, and if so, I guess like what's your steroid dose now, again, recognizing this is tricky because Mm -hmm. you may do something for an 85 year old frail patient versus like a six year old robust, um, you know, person that's still very active. So like, what do you, uh, generally generally do? Sorry. That was like a really long question. No, no, that's great. No, I get it. And I think it's really it's tailored to the patient and I think that's what you have to sort of really understand because when we look at patients with bullous pemphigoid often they're elderly often they have comorbidities Mm -hmm. and you have to consider that when you're prescribing your treatment Mm -hmm. so you know for sure for mild to moderate diseases we'll start with things like you said we do start with a potent topical steroid but you can use a lot of potent topical steroids. Like, you know, some people will be recommending up to using 40 grams a day, which is a, almost a full <laughs> tube of clobetazole, <laughs> right? Yeah. Clobetazole propionate. 
Um, so you start with that, but then it's what do you use as a steroids bearing agent right. or do you go straight to steroids? Yeah. And I think it depends on the severity. For some cases that are milder, I think you can get away with going straight to doxy, to mm -hmm. dapsone, so doxycycline, dapsone or methotrexate. Um, for more severe disease though, we start with prednisone. Now obviously you can get by with a lower dose. Mm -hmm. I think you can start at 0.5 milligram per kilo and in patients who don't respond to that in three or four weeks, we can up it to 0.75 milligram per kilo per day. Um, and then really once you get into the point of, okay, they just can't get off the steroids, what other options do you do? You have a whole list of other therapeutic options you can go to. Right. And those therapeutic options as well, they de it depends on the patient. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's everything. I mean, we talked about methotrexate, but azathioprine sells up the usual ones, IVIG, you know, Ritex. But I think that where I found it challenging at times is in the elderly patient who have multiple comorbidities. The minute you get them on prednisone, yes. their you know, their sugars go up, or they you know they have cardiovascular disease mm -hmm. or whatever. And and in those cases, I think there's a role for some of the newer, um, well, maybe not so new, but biologics things like omalizumab right. or dupilumab, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess I'm looking forward to a time where hopefully we may get indications that it'll make it easier to get those because for sure. To your point, you know, many of these older patients have comorbidities. You put them on steroids, like you're, I'm already a little bit nervous to do that. And then mm -hmm. you can't get them off of it. Yep. When do you, so say you start somebody on, you know, say you choose something like doxy, dapsone, methotrexate, mm -hmm. how long do you give it to work before mm -hmm. you say, mm, I'm probably going to have to step up to something different? So I think for a lot of those therapies, they do take a few months to have full efficacy. Mm -hmm. Doxy can easily take up to three months to see the full efficacy. So sometimes it depends on the severity again. Like if you can't wait, you have to bridge them with steroids. Yeah. And so I anticipate that most patients are going to need a steroid sparing agent. There are a handful where you put them on steroids and if you do a slow taper, they actually they do okay and right. you can just maintain them afterwards with prednisone. But for most patients, I look at initiating a steroid sparing agent fairly early on, knowing that the average time for something like pemphigoid to burn out is between probably two to five years. Okay. Sometimes longer. Um, so obviously, yeah. I love the ones that you just give the one burst to and then it never comes back. It's just yeah. like, you know, you just, yeah, high five yourself um, or the disease. For sure. In terms of doxycycline, do you try to combine it with uh, niacinamide? And if so, can you get that? Because we have like a problem getting that yeah. in Nova Scotia. So um, I stopped doing that a long time ago. Okay. And that's, uh, you know, obviously there is evidence for that in the literature, but I never found that I had enough therapeutic efficacy from it, that okay. it made a difference. And even with niacinamide, like it's difficult, it's not real tolerated. And I don't know. I just, I gave up. I, okay. I mean, I don't want to say I gave up on it, but I gave up on it. I just I've, didn't find, I've find never it used added it, enough. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just making sure I wasn't, you know, missing out, missing the big boat. No. Here. Yeah. My other question pertains to that more long chronic steroid taper. And mm -hmm. I will admittedly, um, not often give patients PJP prophylaxis. And mm -hmm. I guess I'm just wondering if that's something that you would tend to do. 
Um, and if so, what is your choice for that? Because it's something that I don't do often. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes the patient will say, get admitted to medicine for some other reason. And right. they'll put them on, you know, Septra. And I'm like, woo. Um, because like knock on wood, knock on table, mm -hmm. I haven't had a case of PJP from a chronic steroid taper. But what's yep. your, how do you do that? So I find this, it's a challenging question. And um, <laughs> I, I would say because there is literature, there was a big publication now, it's a bit old now, but it's Jamaderm and it was in 2017 that said, the risk of PJP with patients who have bullous disease is extremely low. Okay, good. Whew. <clears throat> and therefore, you know, the risks of side effects from the standard sort of drugs we use like Septra or, um, you know, Dapsone for PJP prophylaxis is higher. Having said that, I treat probably a disproportionate number <laughs> of bullous <laughs> okay. disease right. uh, compared to most dermatologists. And I've had three cases in my career. Okay. And okay. they've had very prolonged and difficult outcomes. Okay. So I struggle with this a little bit because I think, you know, if you want, if you don't do it, there's evidence in the literature that supports you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. But the American Thoracic Society guidelines do say that you need PJP prophylaxis if you're on prednisone more than 20 milligrams for mm -hmm. more than four weeks. Right. So I have changed my practice. Okay. And I do actually give septa prophylaxis. Okay, like three times a week. Yeah, so okay. I'll do like the double strength form and I'll do one tablet every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I mean, other options certainly include Dapsone and there's, you know, there's inhaled options which are really expensive, mm -hmm. um, but also Atovacone is other yep. ones that ha have been used, so... Okay. So that's good. I, and I mean, I, I guess more <laughs> lately, I've been reaching to Dapsone as my choice for when I'm thinking a patient's going to tape them off a of prednisone, I put them on Dapsone, mm -hmm. hoping that that's going to keep yeah. things under control. Yep. So two birds, one stone, maybe? A hundred percent. So I think that especially with Dapsone, um, you know, Dapsone can be very beneficial in patients with pemphigoid. It can be helpful in patients with some forms of pemphigus as well, like pemphigus foliaceous. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, there's a rationale for that. You can use it as an immunomodulatory agent and as, you know, an, a PJP prophylaxis agent. So. Do you think there's a patient, like a, like a patient profile, I guess, early on that you may see and go, I think that person might be better with Dapsone. Like, I guess what, what I've been seeing a fair amount lately too, and I just wanted to get your take is like some of these younger patients with mm -hmm. pemphigoid. And so, you know, they're 50 or they're mm -hmm. 51 and, um, classic learning, at least from when I was a resident was, you know, usually pemphigoid comes later. So for those patients, I'll often go, well, Dapsone might be a safer long-term choice because then I'm not immunosuppressing them. But mm -hmm. I don't know if I just made that up or if it's... No, uh, I don't think you made that up. I think that's actually very accurate. The one thing with Dapsone that you need to worry about and the patient population that I've run into trouble with and that's well-documented is the elderly. Right. Um, mostly just because it can drop, you know, if anyone has cardiovascular disease, um, everyone drops their hemoglobin mm -hmm. a little bit with Dapsone. Yep. So, you know, they're going to have... A, they can run into problems. Right. So the younger patients, I think, do tolerate it well. I'm when I get the pathology as well, though. I take a look. Sorry, we got a little Toronto uh, <laughs> traffic jam in the morning in the here. here. <laughs> but 
I am. Um, I was just going to say that I do take a look at the pathology, mm-hmm. and if I see, you know, obviously with bullous pemphigoid, we classically see a subepidermal bulla. You might see some neutrophils, eosinophils, but if there's quite a few neutrophils, it does tend to suggest they respond better. Okay. So when I'm seeing a subepidermal bulla and I'm seeing neutrophils on the biopsy, then I think dapsone. Okay has more rationale for working and it does work a bit better in those cases. Okay. The, the next thing that I want to talk about before we switch gears a bit is just that, you know, when you pull the trigger for something like rituximab. So, mm-hmm. um, do you find that there's, you know, do you, are you waiting for like multiple other failures or maybe not being able to access one of the safer options that you mentioned, like amalizumab or dupilumab? Mm-hmm. Is there a patient that you really go, this is, this patient's going to need rituximab. And if so, what level of the success or sorry, what level of the success do you have with treating pemphigoid mm-hmm. with retux? Cause I mean, when we talk about pemphigus, I think that probably comes up yep. earlier and has more robust data, but yeah. So, um, when it comes to rituximab, you know, it's really the severe patient who's mm-hmm. got recalcitrant disease. Um, and you don't see it as often with pemphigoid as you see it with the pemphigus variants. Right. Having said that there are a handful of patients with really bad disease um, and of course, other pemphigoid variants like mucous membrane pemphigoid, right. if they're getting scarring, uh, high risk areas, we'll, we'll go down that road with rituximab a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So I do think it has a role. I think if you look at the average age of the patient population, you have to be more careful mm-hmm. administering rituximab. Certainly, um, I've been, I was talking to some residents the other day and I was telling the story of how... I was getting, I don't want to say flippant with rituximab, but I've used it so much. I felt a very, very, you know, I have tremendous comfort with the medication. And I think it's been a game changer for the treatment of our bullous diseases. But I also was somewhat humbled, I think, when I saw uh, when COVID came along. Right. And certainly my colleagues in rheumatology um, had some deaths. and, Mm -hmm. And the deaths were those patients who were on rituximab. So I do think it's a very heavy immune suppression. Yeah. Um, I think that people, especially the elderly, are at major, you know, a major high, high risk of infection. Yes. And so I'm, I'm way more cautious with that patient population and administering rituximab. Yeah. I think that's totally fair. I think that actually you bring up a good point, which is the mucous membrane pemphigoid. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least for me, I find we get a lot of referrals from ophthalmology, uh, patient has, you know, biopsy proven, positive DIF, um, cicatricial changes in their eye, but mm-hmm. they don't really have skin stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, their comfort level with advanced systemics yeah, is they don't. Z- zero. Yes. Um, and so I find that a particularly challenging area to treat because I can't monitor the change. Yeah. Um, but similarly, I don't want a patient to lose vision because mm-hmm. I haven't been aggressive enough. And, and I find actually for many of my patients in that category, they are a little bit younger. So I, right. I find I'm going to rituximab early, but have you had better success with immunosuppressives like prior to, um, yeah. So for sure, I think with mucous membrane pemphigoid, my approach has always been, is it high risk or low risk disease? Mm -hmm. Low risk is going to be sort of oral mucosa, right? Right. Where you're getting a bit of a just gingivitis. And in those cases, I mean, you can lose teeth for sure. Like you get erosion, the teeth become loose and you can lose them. But if it's not going down the airway, you know, it's, it's lower risk. Skin Mm -hmm. is actually lower risk. Mm -hmm. Once you get the high risk disease, so that's like ocular, nasal, going down the airway. I had a patient who came and traked from her pemphigoid just because it really scarred around the laryngeal area. 
or genital, you know, yeah. where you're getting any kind of stenosis in those locations, that goes to high risk. And then I think, um, you know, we do need to look at more aggressive immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. Historically, cyclophosphamide right. is really the way to go with that. And I would teach our residents that it's triple therapy. And mm -hmm. the triple therapy is prednisone, dapsone, and cyclo. Okay. But I think nowadays, you know, cyclo comes with a lot of side effects, much yeah. higher risks of cancer, much higher risk of immune suppression. So I tend not to use cyclo, and I would go to Ritex first. If I couldn't get Ritex for whatever reason, Obviously, we have cycle in the background. I do think there's a rationale still for IVIG mm -hmm. in these patients. Okay. And there's role for some of the old, you know, older immunosuppressants like azathioprine and, right. my, and mycophenolate mofetil. But my preference for those high-risk ones that are progressing fast is still rituximab. Okay, that's good to know. Whew, haven't missed the boat on that. No, not at all. We'll be back to Dermalogs after this brief message from the CDA. Mark your calendars, the 99th CDA Annual Conference, hosted by the Canadian Dermatology Association, is scheduled from June 26th to June 29th, 2024, and it will take place in our nation's capital city, Ottawa. A well-established, leading conference by and for certified Canadian dermatologists, it offers top-tier education and patient advocacy. Find out more at dermatology.ca forward slash conference. And now, back to Dermalogs. So I wanted to transition a little bit in the patient that presents maybe looking like bullous pemphigoid, but then is ultra recalcitrant to treatments. And then when you kind of re, this is me, I guess maybe everybody else catches this early on, but you know, I go back because if something's not proceeding in the way that I expected to, I kind of go back and like, was I, was my diagnosis correct? And so mm -hmm. And you go back and maybe, for example, you know, re-examine the patient and you start to see some milia. Mm -hmm. Or you're starting to go, maybe this is EBA. Do you think that there's some earlier clues in patients that present with subepidermal blistering that may lead you to think it's more epidermolysis bullosa acquisita? Or do you have to, are you like me where you have to wait for it to show itself? I mean, you're probably not. I'm sure you figure it out earlier than me. No, not necessarily. Um, I think sometimes it evolves over time. Absolutely. There's certain clinical clues, like whenever someone's presenting with, you know, uh, sub, what looks like subepidermal blistering or a tense bulla clinically, uh, I'll always examine the mucosa. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, every single patient, I'll pull down, you know, the eyelids, take a closer look to see if I see any scarring, because that can point to you towards, you know, mucous membrane pemphigoid, it can point you towards EBA, right? because with EBA, certainly there are many phenotypes that can overlap, including mm -hmm. an MMP phenotype. Um, you know, you look for the milia, you look for scarring, those are the standard things that you're going to look for. Um, you can pull some stuff. There's a novel variant of pemphigoid, not that, well, it's been around for a while, but it's not as well described as the P200 pemphigoid. You can see that in patients that are a slightly younger age group. Right. Um, and that can sometimes give you a clue similar to pemphigoid, like classic bullous pemphigoid. It's more cephalic in distribution. You can get palmoplantar plantar involvement, mucous membrane involvement. But younger age of onset and okay. more common um, in Asian patients, especially right. the Japanese um, okay. patients. And it can be seen in association with psoriasis. Hmm. So I think if, you know, you, you, you try and look for clinical clues and then I will rely on, for instance, our immunofluorescence and our, our, um, 
our pathology. So the pathology can help you, mm -hmm. for instance, if you have a cell-poor subepidermobola, right. that might point more towards a non-inflammatory form of EBA. Depending on your location, you can do salt-split skin, which can help you determine whether it's binding to the epidermal or dermal side, and that will differentiate something from, like, BP mm -hmm. from something like P200 pemphigoid or EBA. Yeah. Um, and then you can also look at the serration pattern. That's something I've harped about over the years, and not all <laughs> pathologists can read it, but there's this pattern. It's either U or N serration. Right. But I think that does help because, you know, with bullous pemphigoid, classically, you'll see an enserration pattern, you'll see it binding to the epidermis, the antibodies bind to the epidermis, whereas for something like P200 pemphigoid, it's an enserration pattern, but it's dermal binding. And okay. if it's EBA, it's a eucerration pattern, and it's dermal binding. So you can get some clues okay. um, to differentiate that. And then to follow up, do you find that there's a certain therapeutic option or ladder that works better for EBA or do you tend to follow the same process? No, I think for, for mild to moderate EBA, I, I do use things like Dapsone or Colchicine okay. earlier on. Yeah. And then for really severe disease, this is where I say there, there are a whole host of immunosuppressants, you know, the standard ones, everything from methotrexate to cyclosporin that have been used. But the only thing that has worked well for me for more severe EBA is Ritex yeah. and IVIG actually has a role okay. as well there, but the standard immunosuppressants I don't think work as well. So you end up sort of just spending a lot of time on those to go to Ritex. So I right. try to initiate sort of moving up that Rituximab earlier in the therapeutic algorithm. Okay. And then the only other thing I want to talk about before we move to pemphigus is just in terms of the wound care for patients mm -hmm. that have a lot of open erosions. And I mean, I guess this applies to pemphigus too, mm -hmm. but um, in your center or you personally, do you find that there's certain um, dressings that you like for patients that have these conditions? Or do you, t like I tend to kind of be like, you know, topical steroid with like a non-stick and then the little burn net, you know, make like a little burn net t-shirt. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any wound care tips for the patients that have blistering conditions? Yeah. So I think, you know, the biggest thing is it, it doing exactly what you said, actually, and not staying away from adhesive dressings, um, especially for the pemphigus variants. The minute mm -hmm. you put an adhesive dressing and you take it off, you're essentially eliciting a Nikolsky sign, right? <laughs> so Don't just, do that. Yeah. You're ripping off the skin. But um, any kind of nonstick dressing and coating it. Um, so topical steroids are fine. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's really big surface area, you know, we, we will use other things like just plain old Vaseline petroleum right. jelly. Yeah. Um, but it's watching for infection, treating infection early, you know, doing good oral hygiene, right. making sure if there's ocular involvement for any of the bullous diseases that you're getting ophthalmology involved mm -hmm. just to, to make sure. Um, some obviously can lead to scarring of the eyes. Um, and so we just want to make sure we don't miss that. Yeah. Okay. Good. Whew. Again, this mm -hmm. is a uh, very reassuring to me, uh, <laughs> for my own You do practice. everything perfectly. There I don't you need go. to teach you anything. <laughs> um, okay. I, I want to shift gears and talk about the pemphigus family. Yeah. Um, because obviously it's like a little bit different and what I will tell actually before we do that, not before we do it, but while we do that, I had a patient recently and this was a challenge to me and maybe again, this could just be me. Um, relatively young woman in her early fifties, uh, came in with tense bullet, um, no erosions, no mucosal involvement. And I was like, Oh, here we go. Pemphigus did my biopsy or pemphigoid. Sorry. Did my biopsies, um, started her on steroid with a plan to add it. Or I think I added Dapsone at the same time. And then the biopsies came back pemphigus. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I was a little confused because clinically it didn't look at all like pemphigus. It truly mm-hmm. looked like pemphigoid. Mm-hmm. And I, and then I say, do I believe my clinical? Do I believe my pathology? Mm-hmm. Am I missing something? Has yeah. that come up for you? Because normally it's a little bit more straightforward to tell the difference. Sure. I mean, like classically we'll see sort of more the flaccid bulla that can, you know, elicit a Nikolsky sign or a Nasbo Hansen sign. Sometimes when the morphology is a little off, it should trigger uh, sort of the thought of, okay, are we dealing with a different form of pemphigus? Mm-hmm. And there are many different forms of pemphigus, or so there's a number of pemphigus variants. But when you see the BP phenotype, that's one of the ones that you can see with, um, it used to be called perineoplastic pemphigus, mm-hmm. but it's actually more properly termed perineoplastic autoimmune multi-organ syndrome or PAMS. Okay. And so clinically with PAMS, there's five phenotypes. Okay. Um, there is a pemphigus variant where it looks like classic pemphigus. There's a pemphigoid variant where it looks like BP, so bullous pemphigoid. There's an erythema multiforme variant. There's a lichen planus variant. And then there's a graft-versus-host disease, GVHD variant. Oh so with PAMS, the morphology is quite different, and mm-hmm. that's really typical, um, not, well, it's not typical, I should say, but it's characterized by having a polymorphous eruption. And then also a clinical clue is that they'll have rip roaring, uh, stomatitis. So okay. they just have very, very extensive right. yes. and recalcitrant yeah. lip involvement and mm-hmm. they can get a mucositis with that. So I think if I had a patient who the clinical came back or the clinical looked like BP, but the path came back as pemphigus, I might go, okay, am I dealing with a pemphigus variant? Could it be possibly PAMS? Okay. And then wanting to make sure that obviously those have, can be seen in association with an underlying malignancy. And so if you had, fortunately she's had a full workup, which was negative, but okay. if you had a patient like that, um, you know, say just a middle-aged patient, mm-hmm. do you do sort of what we would call age-appropriate cancer screening? Mm-hmm. Do you recommend that to their primary care doctor? Or do you sort of like, you know, head-to-toe CT people? Or what's, how do you look for a cancer? So I think um, it depends a little bit. I would, you know, I'd probably take a step back and look mm-hmm. at the pathology as well. Because if we're thinking PAMS, um, there are some unique findings on the pathology that okay. wouldn't be seen with pemphigus. So okay. for instance, um, you may or may not see the acanthalysis actually with PAMS, but what you do see is a lichenoid infiltrate or an interface dermatitis. So you can see a lot of inflammation there and you'll see some necrotic keratinocytes. So if we're seeing that, I would definitely have a higher index of suspicion. Okay. Um, and then the immunofluorescence can show you patterns that actually mimic bullous pemphigoid and pemphigus in the sense that you can see a sub-epidermal sort of staining pattern, so a linear band along the dermal-epidermal junction, okay. as well as an intercellular staining pattern, so the classic chicken wire or net-like appearance that you can see with pemphigus. So if I saw some other features there, I would be definitely going down the path of working mm-hmm. up a malignancy. Okay. Um, and for me, that's usually you know, CT, chest, abdo, pelvis. Um, mm-hmm. It depends on the availability of something like a PET CT scan at your institution. Some right. people can get it very easily. And if that's the case, I would 100% get it. Yeah. If not, I, I would go down this sort of CT, chest, abdo, pelvis. Okay. Um, always doing like things like a CBC with smear. Yes. Um, you know, doing a protein electrophoresis and then age appropriate malignancy workup. Right. I mean, mammogram, cervical, you know, cervical screens, PSA for a man, that kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, 
if we go to the, and yeah, I think that stomatitis is something that sticks in my brain as it like is, a reminder yeah. of um, a perineoplastic or, or PAMS, which I now have learned something. Yes. So this, this PAMS thing is, is something that's relatively new to me, um, and it may not be new to the residents, but do you have, you know, is this something that goes beyond skin or, you know, are there are certain cancers that are associated with it? We talked about what kind of screening you might do, but what, what specific cancers are we looking for? Right. So um, the residents actually taught me this mnemonic that they use, which is nobody can chew their solids with PAMS. Okay. And it's actually an order of the most common um, malignancies that you can see with PAMS. Oh. So N is for the fact that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is the first one. Okay. Then it's um, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, so CLL followed by Castleman's, um, that nobody can chew there. Then it's thymoma, sarcoma, and Waldenstrom. So those are the most common malignancies that we see in association with PAMS. Wow, okay. Um, And then just a reminder as well that it is a systemic disease. So that's really what prompted the name change from perineoplastic pemphigus to perineoplastic um, autoimmune multi-organ syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you do get systemic involvement. You can get thyroid disease. You can get GI disease. And you can get lung disease. And probably, um, I've seen this twice now with PAMS, but the most severe lung disease is bronchiolitis obliterans. Uh. Um, And that can be devastating. Mm -hmm. That can just have terrible consequences. So although, you know, we use a lot of the same um, therapeutic options um, that we've seen with PEMFIGUS, I would just point out that IVIG is the one therapeutic option that potentially holds promise at helping treat um, the bronchiolitis obliterans. Okay. And that's probably the worst consequence of PAMS. Okay. Um, thinking more classic pemphigus, um, or pemphigus vulgaris, I mm-hmm. should say, because as you mentioned, there's a variety of different types of pemphigus. What do you find tends to be your treatment ladder for that, again, recognizing that every patient's a little bit different, um, does it does it look different than your pemphigoid treatment line? I suspect it does, because you're probably does, more yeah. aggressive early on. So what do you tend, like yeah. pemphigus vulgaris, not a lot of comorbidities, you know, patient in their, their 40s, for example, right. like what are you going to do? So I can tell you what I want to do and what I can do, okay. because sometimes it's <laughs> Those different may not depending be the same. On, the, okay. On, okay. on the funding of therapies. Right. <laughs> but uh, because, of course, all the drugs we're talking about for bullous disease, in, at least in Canada, are largely off-label. Yeah. Right? Asterix. Yes. Right. So, um, but I think um, there were some recent guidelines a couple of years ago published in the GADV, and they really okay. highlight some important changes in how we are treating pemphigus. And I think the major change is that Ritex is moving up to Mm -hmm. first line on the therapeutic ladder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we see. And in the ideal world, that's what I like to do. So, of course, even Ritex takes many months to work. So if you're asking me, how do I start? A patient walks in with pemphigus, I start them on prednisone. And I start them at one milligram per kilo per day. If they're not getting any better in three to four weeks, I go up to 1.5 milligram per kilo per day. Okay. Um, And so if you look at the new guidelines, basically there's three ways you can start treating them. You can just start them with prednisone monotherapy. I almost never do that because I know... They aren't, you know, the moment not I start ta- tapering the prednisone, yeah. like very few patients aren't going to flare. Right. So I look at a steroid sparing agent fairly early on. So the options are really to do prednisone monotherapy, prednisone plus, and that plus could be either azathioprine or mycophenolate or prednisone plus rituximab. Right. 
Um, and so I think even for mild disease, there's evidence to say rituximab's first line. It just it has been a game changer. Mm -hmm. And the chronic side effects you get from prednisone and the other immune suppressive agents really like, it's just, yeah. you're in the, in the end, you do better by just going straight to rituximab and minimizing those side effects. Now that's my opinion. The evidence really <laughs> hasn't examined that, you know, and compared say prednisone plus azathioprine and mycophenolate directly to prednisone plus rituxx or the evidence right. that's been, but. that has done, it's not maybe as good quality, but it's, it's been a game changer for these patients. Do you, and do you, so I, like, let's say magical world, you get it covered, you give it to them in conjunction with their prednisone, you taper that off. Do you always plan to repeat in six months? Do you follow antibodies or do you wait for a clinical um, sign that you should repeat your rituximab? I guess, so I guess I'm thinking more for subsequent treatments with right. rituximab. What's your, what's your approach to that? Right. So um, I think it's variable, to okay. be honest, and it's a conversation I have with each and every patient. And the pandemic actually affected how I treated that, too. Right. Because many patients, once you give them rituximab, um, they go into remission mm -hmm. for long periods of time, right? They can go into remission for 12 to 18 months. And there's a handful, not the majority, but there's a handful who don't need any further treatments. Right. So I always actually give patients three options. I say, what we can do is the following. We can wait to see if you flare. And if you flare, at the moment you flare, we reinitiate, you know, an application for coverage for rituximab and we try to get it covered and go in with a second infusion. Mm -hmm. We can give you at six months a lower dose, a maintenance dose, which right. can be anywhere from just 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams. The normal sort of when, you know, you're actually treating first time, it's 1,000 milligrams on days one and 15. Mm -hmm. So it's weight independent. Um, so you can go for a lower dose at six months or you can go for the full treatment again at six months. Okay. Um, and I think the, the thing is... I, one of the things that I did, and this was just purely an academic observation, one day I just said with one patient, I'm going to follow their B cells. Okay. And every six months I followed the B cells because yeah. I wanted to say, how long is rituximab on board? How long does it take for the B cells to come back? Right. You know, if we're repeating it every six months to a year, presumably the B cells are coming back at six months to a year. And I think in most patients, it comes back between anywhere from sort of maybe six to 18 months. Okay. But the longest patient I had was 27 months. It took her 27 really? months for the B cells to actually come back. And then I'm assuming that's associated with no flare of disease, obviously, if the you B know, cells are... Not, it, remarkably, <laughs> you would think so, right? Yeah. But it's it's interesting. People can flare when they still have no B cells. So it's huh. a very complex okay. um, immunologic mechanism going on. But um, so anyhow, I the, the point is, I don't think we know. I mean, I think that, you know, in an ideal world, you know, maybe you repeat at a lower dose at six months and, you know, um, and then some people don't respond to the lower dose. So mm -hmm. you can give them the maintenance dose at six months, but then they break through and then you have to justify, you know, getting funding to give them back the full dose. Right. So it is very patient dependent in, okay. in an elderly individual who had a bunch of comorbidities. I might be more inclined to like wait it out and see if I really needed another dose. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. What are you most excited about uh, from a therapeutic perspective that is kind of either coming down the pipe or 
hopefully close to the finish line that you th- think might be the next game changer for immunobullous conditions? Yeah, so um, I think that in the pemphigoid realm, um, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot new treatment, a lot of new treatments coming up. Um, they're targeted therapies. So, mm-hmm. for instance, we're targeting complement pathways. As a, if you go back to basic science, you'll <laughs> Whoa, remember. I try, with, I try not, <laughs> not to do that, regime, but uh, okay. <laughs> but when you, you'll remember that complement plays a big role, right. sort of in the pemphigoid pathway and yeah. mediating inflammation. And so we have some new therapies that will target C5A, and I think that's going to be an interesting sort of. you know, addition to our therapeutic armamentarium. I think we've got some new targeted therapies blocking interleukin-5. And so I think those will be interesting to see for pemphigoid. For pemphigus, you know, I think rituximab has been a game changer. But I think we're going to find newer, probably better therapies that aren't quite so immunosuppressive. And I think, you know, as we move forward, developing things like tolerance um, Mm -hmm. and things like that will make a difference, but I don't see that in the near future. Okay. So I think the the ones that are coming up sooner will be in the pemphigoid realm and it'll be targeting things like the C5A pathway, um, the interleukin-5 pathway, and even um, the ILs and 23s um, are showing some evidence for Mm. pemphigoid, so. That's exciting. Yeah. Listen, Regine, I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of the conference to come and talk to me. I think we've covered a lot of immunobolus content. Uh, I think the residents are going to glean a lot of pearls from this. So just thank you so much. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, certainly if any resident has questions, they're more than welcome to reach out to me by email. Amazing. Thanks. And thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and write a review where you listen. It helps others to find these interviews. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out the JCMS author interviews hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kirk Barber. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.